without representation. 200 years of exploitation in the capital of this nation. No representation in the capital of this nation. 200 years of exploitation. Give the people their right to vote. Someone asked me, was it true? The voting rights of the district were long overdue. That was Sweet Honey in the Rock with Give the People Their Right to Vote. Hello and welcome to Shadow Politics, an hour-long grassroots talk show which will attempt to shine a light on the issues that you care about. I'm your host, United States Senator Michael D. Brown, coming to you live from the District of Columbia. America's last colony. I'm joined by my co-host, Marilia Duffels, and together we hope our show will start a dialogue with America about the issues that are important to you and affect the lives of all of us. So feel free to call in and be part of the conversation at 888-627-6008. We have a very special guest tonight, but first let me introduce Marilia. Marilia, how are you? You got all your Christmas shopping done? Uh, yeah, well, not a big Christmas shopper. I'm not a big shopper anyway. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Well, I've got all my kids coming home and they're all expecting, you know, okay. uh, yeah, lots of stuff, I'm sure. So, so I'm going to brave it tomorrow morning. I'm going to go out to the mall because uh, I tested negative for COVID the other day. So I'm feeling cocky all of a sudden. But tonight <laughs> we have with us Kamon Freeman. Uh, Camone started uh, a, a station with 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 another great guy called We Act Radio, and those of you that listen to our show know that Marilli and I are now on that platform as well. So we're we're really happy to have this uh, local celebrity activist and just all around great guy, Camone Freeman, with us tonight. Camone, thanks for being on the show. Uh, my pleasure and honor. Well, you know, let me start, come on, by telling you that when I came to your 10th anniversary party, that uh, Marilia, unfortunately, wasn't able to attend because she was out of town. I was very uh, disappointed. Yeah, and you know what? I met so many people there that I knew that I was, you know, I saw so many people there like Ed Lazier and Reverend Hagler and Bill Lightfoot. I could go on and on and on. All these people that I've known in, in Washington for years. In fact, Hagler and Lazier have both been on the show before. So it, it just it just felt so comfortable to be there. It just felt like a place that I should have been a very long time ago. And I'd just like to add to that, that everybody that worked there went out of their way to make me feel comfortable. So so thanks for that. And I'm really excited about being part of the WEAC family. Yeah, thank you. And um, that i like to say that uh, Eaton um, Hotel D.C. was the, the site location and um, that mm-hmm. staff um, that you were complimenting that um, they, they're probably the most uh, politically aligned um, hotel in Washington, D.C. So if you're looking for the antithesis of the Trump Hotel, I would urge uh, folks that are visiting Washington, D.C. to uh, patronize the Eaton Hotel. Yeah, and I, I bet you can get a drink for less than twenty-three dollars too. Yeah, 
<laughs> you know, just throw that, just throw that in there. Uh, but uh, yeah, it, it was a great event with a lot of great people. And I think what you're doing is, you know, putting on an activist radio station, which is really what the show is meant to be. It's meant to be, you know, we want to motivate people. We want to motivate people to be, to care about uh, D.C. statehood, obviously, but but also other issues. There's so many issues out there, um, you know, uh, especially in our city. Um, you know, uh, I know that you guys did a, a, a series or a piece called Anacostia Unmapped, which got uh, 15 million gross impressions. Can you tell us about that? What motivated you to do that? And exactly what was that? <laughs> That's funny because um, uh, just uh, here on uh, December 18th, uh, Saturday, 8 p.m., was the Story District. Um, annual hoopla they did at the Lincoln Theater uh, and Story District um, this wonderful group uh, of storytellers who goes around uh, curating um, um, stories to get people to perform them and I always loved that um, platform because these wasn't comedians, these wasn't you know uh, necessarily uh, artists but we felt that Every human being, by the sake of their humanity, had one story the whole world could benefit from. You know, but oftentimes it's the one story they don't uh, want to want to know about, the one story they don't want to discuss, or or what have you. But that's the one story that the whole world could benefit from. And DCS, uh, under different management, uh, different different ownership rather, was a local publication, and they had printed an article advertising D.C. apartment, and there was a map. And on that map was Arlington and Alexandria. And for those outside of D.C., um, that is northern Virginia. Um, and, of course, before the Civil War, um, parts of Virginia was encompassed in D.C. D.C. was a, a diamond. It was a square. Um, but the uh, advent of Civil War, uh, of course, Virginia... Uh, seceded from the Union and took back <laughs> their land, and so D.C. is a broken diamond. And But this is supposed to be a map of D.C. apartment r rental rates. So Virginia has somehow made it back into D.C., but yet Ward 7 and Ward 8, and again, for those outside of D.C., that's everything that's east of the river, and that means the, the underclass, i.e. the black people, the poor people, and they weren't on the map. So I had some, you know, I felt some kind of way. I'm like, okay, so, so East of the River is not part of D.C., but Arlington and Virginia are. Okay, got it. And so I wrote a letter to, to Jesus and the 12 disciples and, and got a response, and, uh, and that's where that story took off from um, when we say Anacostia unmapped because we were no longer being seen, and, and, and that's what happens. You know, you, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu, so we're here to amplify those voices and, Maps have been one way of telling a story. Uh, it's been a one way of, 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 of furthering um, uh, a racist story with the um, history of cartography. Uh, for, for example, um, we have to acknowledge an um, a ugly truth that Europe is not a continent. Um, when we look at a map, you can see that there's no 
separation or near separation between Europe and Asia. But in fact, it's just one massive body of land. Um, but we acknowledge this imaginary line, and we call it, or the powers that be call it, a separate continent. And they will make Africa smaller and, and, and America larger. And so that goes into a whole history that I think critical race theory has been uh, challenging, is why they got them uh, such in the armpits. And, and um, I was just blessed that that story caught the attention of local lore, um, a D.C.-based um, um, uh, media agency who had a federal grant um, to cultivate uh, stories around the country of, of displacement. And that made it to NPR, and um, that story turned into, snowballed into um, uh, a radio documentary where we were able to um, hire, uh, I hired a, an activist, which was myself, and I hired a poet, and uh, a person who lived in um, a housing project. And these people interviewed people in their communities uh, to get them to tell their stories. And then we got a grant from D.C. Commission on Humanities and turned that into a multimedia uh, exhibition um, that was on display for about six weeks in the C.H. Uh, Gallery. Uh, in the lobby of D.C. Commission on Humanity. So it's all about doing what you can with what you have, um, tell stories and challenge the status quo. And I think that far too often we have allowed ourselves to um, be subservient to the status quo rather than challenging the status quo. Well, i got to agree with that. And, you know, as you point out, we're particularly sensitive to the whole geographical racism or geographical um, you know, discrimination as the District of Columbia, which was, you know, conceived uh, and and changed. Uh, uh, Virginia got back its portion, as you point out, because they were afraid we were going to end slavery, which they were right about it. We were the first jurisdiction to end slavery. Uh, but there's a great book out there called How the, Shape, How the States Got Their Shapes, and if you read it, it's really, it's really kind of a uh, middle school book, geography book. But it's very interesting. In many, many states, the way the states got their shapes had to do with racism, money, you said, uh, you and said power. You said how the states got their shape. Yeah, is the name of the book. And there are lots okay. of like. Like, and, you know, like, there are, I, I can't remember exactly what the different states think, but there, there are some states which have a really straight, really strange shapes. They're not square. They're not yeah. round. They're not, you know, and it's all based on, you know, who was in power, uh, slave mm-hmm. state, non-slave state, you know, all these things. So mm-hmm. politics always played a role. In, in 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 the way states were were formed, but Marilly, go ahead. Ask I'm glad you mentioned. I'm glad oh, you sorry, mentioned that, and more importantly, that you said it was. You pointed out there was a middle school book because oftentimes we adults we think we we you know we above any children's books. You know what yeah. can we learn from a, a, a school book? Well, I learned in a school book, and um, that uh, let me say this slowly. Uh, Langston Hughes 
grandmother's second husband was Langston Hughes' grandfather. But her first husband died with John Brown at Harper's Ferry. Oh. Uh, hmm. And well, so, so that made her right? yeah, that made her a widow of the men who failed with John Brown. And Theodore Roosevelt, for some godly reason, admired John Brown. And when he was no longer president, he um, he opened he uh, how do you want to call it the you know the opening of the John Brown Memorial Park, wherever it is. Um, Theodore Roosevelt oversaw the, the festivities, and he brought up Langston Hughes' grandmother, who was the last surviving widow of the uh, men who failed with John Brown, and brought her up on stage to speak. And so Lil Langston sees his grandmother, they're introduced by the former president, and that's the connection between Langston Hughes and John Brown. I got all of that from a children's book. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, knowledge is where you find yeah. it. I'm, I'm lucky enough Where's to be married, married to a school librarian, so I get a lot of middle school oh, and, and senior high school books. I think that I think that's because I own no, I think she believes I can only read at an eighth grade, eighth grade level, but uh, <laughs> but she brings that stuff. Well, Go ahead. Well, that, that was more. That was more than a couple of presidents. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> a couple, couple of recent presidents, or at least one recent president. <laughs> Go ahead, Maria. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, Kimon, I'm, it's an honor to talk to you, and I'm I'm disappointed I didn't get to meet you at that at that evening. Um, I'm just I'm just impressed with everything you've done and and how you you've done it. Um, and I, I, if I'm not mistaken, your middle name is Tecumseh. Yes, it is Native and, American. And, and, yeah, and it's interesting because that that was someone who who fought for the right things like you. And I'm wondering how you got that name and um, and and if you think it this kind of set you for life and and for the, the what you do and this and the things that you fight for and the successes that you've had. Well, I think um, everyone um, should have the right to name themselves, and so this is the name I, I chose for myself because okay. um, for Black people of, of enlightenment, you know, you have to understand that we we basically you know, to this day are, are carrying names that uh, represent the families that own us. Um, that's just a reality uh, for um, Af- African Americans. So I didn't have, I never had an um, an affinity for um, my um, the slave names that um, I was given. So that was the name that I, I chose. So my name is is a deliberate um, decoration, and so I'm glad you're familiar with Tecumseh because I learned about him. Uh, I felt that. Uh, his story was one of those unsung heroes that needed to be highlighted, and I, I wanted to do my best to uh, continue that, that that legacy of resistance and also highlight um, the whole uh, African and Native American uh, alliance um, that existed uh, during that time. Because mm-hmm. what people don't realize um, is that one of the, the greatest uh, uh, sl- slave resistant <laughs> Fugitive locations uh, was was Native American territories, uh, particularly um, in Florida, um, Seminoles. Uh, and did you guys ever see the film um, <clears throat> Matthew McConaughey's film? And I should have that in front of me, having a senior moment. But 
I, I think it was the Great over. State of Jones. The Great State of Jones. That was the name of it. You guys no. ever hear of that one? No. no. The Great State. Y- y'all should put that on your list during the holidays and watch it with the family. So the Great State with Jones, um, Matthew McConaughey was, um, uh, I guess you call a field doctor uh, during mm-hmm. the Civil War. He was working for the um, um, the bad guys. He was working for the Confederate Army. and there, there was, um, uh, if you were, if you, if you deserted, um, the army, you could be shot, you know, that type of thing. Um, but at the same time, if you paid enough money, you could be, um, exempt. So basically if you own slaves, which the war was all being fought over, you could be exempt. And if you didn't own slaves, then you got to fight. <laughs> but, um, so he already resented that, and I guess he just saw too much blood, and there was a young person in his family um, um, was killed, and so he, he went back home. And so they came for him and was trying to um, take his family's land and everything. So he went to flee, and what did he flee to? All these Confederate soldiers fled to the swamp where all the fugitive slaves were. So you had Confederate deserters, and fugitive slaves working mm. together that that liberated spaces and territories within the Confederate-controlled um, territory during the Civil War. I knew nothing about this. So well, and that is what they don't want us to teach. They don't want poor white people and poor black people and poor people of all races and ethnicities to realize their, common, their, their similarities and how they've all been exploited by a system that's designed to use division to maintain their status quo. And, uh, and that's probably why you guys have not heard of Great State of Jones. <laughs> um, so I would urge you guys to, to look that up, and I just wanted to put that on the radar of your audience, because we have more in common than we, than, um, than we realize. Um, I remember, you know, uh, the great... Uh, Fred Hampton, he was talking about the Rainbow Coalition. People think that's Jesse Jackson. Jesse Jackson st- stole that from Fred Hampton. <laughs> Fred Hampton, um, the great Chicago leader of the Black Panther Party, who was assassinated by uh, the FBI and the Chicago Police Department, his family was awarded millions of dollars for that and was portrayed in the great film um, Judas and the Black Messiah, uh, had uh, put got all the gangs together, um, had got um, not just all the black gangs, they got white gangs and, and Latino gangs to all call a truce and, and start working together. And they're like, oh, we can't have that. So whenever you hear these t- people talking about gang violence, and da, da, this is what they want. That's a desired condition that they want. Because if that didn't exist, then they would start turning their attention elsewhere into their real source of their problems as opposed to this maintaining the status quo where it's just, chaos and disorder in communities of color and, and um, poor communities. So well, I just you, want to you throw know, that out there. You know, uh, I got, I've said this several times on the show, Camone, that I was stunned. I have a master's degree in political science, and I was stunned when I saw the movie Amistad. I was, how could I, how could I not know about this? How could I not know that a president of the United States defended these slaves, these runaway slaves. This was such a big 
It seemed like such a big piece of our history. You're not the only one, sir. And here I am. I'm 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 an educated, you know, I'm educated in 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 our system and American politics and American history were my, you know, those those, those were my concentration and I'd never ever heard about it. But let me ask you something. Do you think that we're now coming to a new awareness about racism in, in America, an awareness that didn't exist before because of these things, because that it was, you know, so much of it was swept under the carpet. You know, they say that uh, history, whoever, history is, 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 is written by the winners, the people that win the battles and the people that are in power. It's not written by the people that are not in power. So do you think that the environment is changing now? Or are we coming to a new realization with, uh, you know, the things that have happened uh, over the last uh, couple of years? Well, I got to tell you, Senator, uh, I always uh, cringe when I hear people say we, because um, I, as a kid, I remember uh, growing up watching Lawn Ranger and, um, uh, right. um, and Kim Osabi. So and right. I, I just remember Kim Osabi someone saying, like, uh, it was a joke um, um, a comedian was using. And he was saying, you know, Lawn Ranger said that, you know, he was surrounded by the Native Americans. And Lawn Ranger said, Kim Osabi, what are we going to do? We surround yeah. him. Kim is like, what do you mean we? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> In that situation, what's we? <laughs> you know? So anyway, uh, I know I, I don't. I don't think we are uh, moving there. I think some of us are because you know we have to acknowledge that this is not the United States of America. Uh, this is, um, uh, um, despite what um, Barack Obama says, you know, it's not a blue America. It's not a red America. It's the United States of America. Uh, no, sir. <laughs> there is an opposition out there, and you can see it um, plainly uh, when we talk about uh, critical race theory. You can see it plainly when we talk about um, voting rights. Uh, you can see it plainly um, when we're trying to uh, pass any bills that are benefit of, of the people. The entire Republican Party is uh, dedicated uh, to um, fighting against it. Some people within the Democratic Party itself uh, Senator Joe Manchin and, and what have you are, are fighting against uh, anything that's of benefit uh, to others. So, no, I, do, I don't think that we exist, uh, but I think that the, uh, the, the forces of goodwill are gaining uh, momentum and that this is their last stand, and this is why they're fighting to the bitter end, uh, like Charleston uh, uh, Hilton. Helton. Am I saying this right? Charleston Heston, yeah. Charleston whatever. Heston. Charleston Heston, yes. Yeah. Well, when, yeah, when he says, from my cold, dead hands, you know, that's what we're dealing with. You know, there's a quote, and I'm sorry, guys, I'm a writer, and I, I, I pack quotes like this. Um, this is this one has been attributed to both JFK and um, Bobby Kennedy, so I'm not sure which one it is, but hopefully your listeners can be better researchers than I. It says a revolution is coming, a revolution which would be peaceful if we're wise enough, compassionate if we care enough, successful if we're fortunate enough, but a revolution is coming, whether we will it or not. We can affect its character, but not alter its inevitability. So I think that you know, we, we have 
um, a situation where we are in the, uh, in the midst of a great revolution. And we have to realize that we have um, an unattainable situation that, um, that is, you know, this is this um, structure that we have known as normal <laughs> is uh, not sustainable. Um, the fact that uh, we have, what is his name, Senator John Corrin, a Texas Republican, yeah. said Democrats are delusional if they think they'll pass any new voting laws by the next election. So that's on one side. Chuck Schumer says he you know, found the past voting bills in time for 2022, but they just, correct me if I'm wrong, Senator, didn't Congress just go on vac- vacation? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know what? It, it's funny, because I just went to New York City, and guess who I slammed right into when I was at Penn Station was Chuck Schumer. And I asked him about wow. voting rights and about the D.C. statehood bill. And he said, we have bigger fish to fry right now, basically. I mean, he said, he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, he's, letting you know where that pro- he's letting you know where that priorities lie. He's, at least, right. he's, right. at, at least he's, he's telling you the truth because he clearly was lying when he said that, um, um, that he, he was vowing to pass voting bills in time for 2022. So, yeah. uh, so I, wish, I wish you had reminded him that um, Joe Madison has been on a hunger strike since November 8th. Yeah. For voting rights, so I guess I guess that's not a big uh, uh, fish for them to fry. But at the same time, that they um, they passed um, the largest uh, I call it the War Department. I do not use the words that they use the um, the, the Edward Bernay uh, public relations words um, because it was the War Department before World War II, and then after they had a PR, they called it a defense budget. So people are not. So against a defense budget, right. um, they were right. still in war, um, but it's the war budget. And since they have been, you know, um, you know, downsizing wars, withdrawing from wars, and uh, they still just passed the largest war budget since World War II. And not only that, it's $20 billion more than what the president was even asking for. So that is a bigger fish that they can find. They're all in agreement for. They're in agreement on that one. That's where their priorities lie. Their part is not concerned about anything that's a benefit of the people or challenging um, the inequities of this, the status quo. You know. And again, I got to pull another quote out of a nation that continues year after year to spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual doom. That's MLK. Well, so you Trump know, and, 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 and his, his, and the people across the aisle, they're, they're not reading the, the handwriting on the wall. Well, you know, I, 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 I gotta agree with you again, but, um, um, yeah, the Democrats, I've known this for a long time and really has to, really was a Republican is now an independent, but. The Democrats have as much to learn as the Republicans do. I mean, there's no doubt about it. And part of our damn problem as Democrats, I think, uh, Camone, is that we talk down to the rest of the world. You know, we we, we know what's going on. We're, we're, you know, we're not racist. We're not uh, sexist. We're not, you know, we, we've been able to avoid all these things. And we're going to tell you how things should be. Uh, but... A lot of times we don't get it. And by the way, somebody out there needs to remind Joe Manchin that he is a Democrat. 
You know, Joe, Joe's all about the attention, right? You sure about that? Somebody's got to remind them. You it know? also points to the fact that Democrats never get their message on the same page. They, the, yeah. Everybody's got this, this yeah. an, uh, incohesive, fractured message that is just not part of, whereas the Republicans always seem to line all the little soldiers up to, to talk and, and, and spout the same message and, and spin things the same way that they, that, you know, that they decided upon previously, but the Democrats never achieve that. And, and when you have a message that is splintered, it's not going to get across. Well, and that's the old saying, isn't it? That when it comes to candidates, that Democrats fall in love and Republicans fall in line, you know, that they, they, they are a much more cohesive, cohesive group. Let me ask you, you know, what's really puzzling me these days, come on, is that, in Wisconsin, which is a relatively liberal state, you have this, I don't know any other word to call him other than a murderer, this kid, Kyle Rittenhouse, who comes and murders two people, and he gets off. They don't even charge him with a gun violation. And then you have uh, Ahmaud Aubrey in Georgia, who is hunted down and killed by these rednecks, and the people of Georgia stand up and do the right thing. They convict the right people. I mean, what's going on in America? <laughs> you know, well, isn't that... Well, that's, yeah, go ahead. Well, first, I, let me say um, that the um, Georgia case um, wouldn't have happened if the uh, evidence wasn't presented by the actual accused... <laughs> Right, because they were right. kind of like bragging over what they did, so right. they, they thought they were going to be safe, and um, that that happened. And in right. fact, the prosecutor um, had done all in her power to protect them, um, right. but that video got out, and it turned. So that was the difference in those two cases. But I like to go back to um, the first um, live stream of the civil rights movement um, on Emmett Till. Uh, when yep. the, the little boy was brutally uh, beaten, tortured, and murdered uh, in Mississippi, and um, they got off, and I, sometime after the, the the trial, they sold their story uh, to um, a magazine, and they told the truth and admitted to the murders in a national publication. <laughs> After they was acquitted and there was not a problem, I'm like this is the mark, you know, uh, just like you know we've had the official police report, you know, stood for eons until what um, people had camera phones and start um, telling right. a different story and changing the narrative, and the outrage wasn't um, presented until people start seeing for themselves uh, the disparity, uh, because before then. They didn't believe us, you know, uh, and this has been going on for uh, since we got here. Uh, this is not nothing new. Uh, this is America. It's always been America. Um, we have, whether uh, of our, you know, ignorance or our willful um, uh, ignore, ignorance, um, is been denying uh, to ourselves what has been going on all this time. But I can assure you the people who have been um, suffering it uh, can tell you. 
Um, and that's where we are because we're, 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 we're heading to um, a breaking point where we're going to have to have a situation that works for everybody or a situation that doesn't work for anybody. In fact, you know, um, D.C. Police Chief Conti uh, tried to fire um, a couple dozen um, bad cops and could, was unsuccessful because of the bureaucracy in protecting them. He could yeah. even fire, we're talking about cops who accused of criminal um, misconduct. He couldn't fire them. <laughs> you know, that, that's the system we have. You know, yeah. in 2006, the FBI, no friend of black people, by the way, 2006, the FBI has a report where they admitted that um, law enforcement, and that does not just mean cops, that means cops, prosecutors, judges, you know, law enforcement, that goes all the way up to the Attorney General, we're saying law enforcement, but um, has been infiltrated, quote-unquote, by white supremacists. And it's not white supremacists, it's a bunch of good old boys. You know, I'm a black kid from D.C. I used to love Dukes of Hazard. Do you think anybody ever said, my parents, anyone else said, there was something wrong with me rooting for Robert General Lee to get away? You know? You know, yeah. I mean, that's, this, this is America. America is one big pot of hypocrisy. You know, we're the land of the free, but yet we have the largest prison system in the entire world. You know, this is the best country in the world, but yet we spend more money on health care and have the worst results. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's, that, you know, they call it the American dream because you have to be sleek to believe it. Well, you know what? I, I, this, and, and I don't want to monopolize the show here, Marilia, so jump in, oh, but. But I've got to tell you, I've met Joe Biden. I've met the president several times. Uh, I've followed his career for 40 years. I've been in politics. And I don't believe the man is a racist. But he just said something that he's taking criticism for, because it is a racist remark, I believe, when he said, I don't know if you heard about this, where he gave a speech where he said black entrepreneurs are just like white entrepreneurs except the white entrepreneurs have lawyers. Now, is it because, are we so casual about this? Is it so deeply rooted in, you know, who we are that we don't even think about things like that? That, right, we assume, we assume black lawyers are, are, are poor, right? We, we, we assume the that our black entrepreneurs are poor and that white entrepreneurs can't afford the lawyers. And I don't think he meant anything by it, but didn't he mean something by it? Doesn't I mean, he didn't mean anything by it. I don't think, but doesn't it mean, doesn't it say something about us that, that even people that Yeah, I would have to get the context of that because this is the first time I'm hearing it. But my, my mm-hmm. gut reaction is that it rings true to me. Um, what it sounds like to me, he's saying that, you know, the, 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 the white Venezuelans have a system that's there designed to support them, whereas black people have a system that's been, been, uh, been designed not to support them. That's why you don't see black businesses talking about uh, established in 1912. <laughs> you don't see yeah, businesses, black right. businesses along that long. You know, there's a reason for that, Okay. Um, yeah. but, um, I'm not convinced that he's not, um, um, racist because, um, you know, he's definitely not, uh, uh you know, racist like Trump's a racist, but let me just yeah. point out again, another, another film. Um, uh, this is, this film is a night in, in Miami, a night in Miami, um, had with the story of, 
Malcolm X, John, mm-hmm. um, Jim Brown, and Sam Cooke, uh, who were friends who spent um, the evening that Muhammad Ali won the championship um, together in Miami, right? And in yep. and, and the lead-up to, to, to that, that mythical night, um, Jim Brown was, was home visiting some of his, his, his supporters, and he went to the, the big house to see the, the, whoever the big guy was. On, on, um, I think he lived on some islands in Georgia, some of the Geechee Islands or whatever. And he's having lemonade on the porch, and the daughter's bringing him out stuff, and all the hospitality, and uh, the big man's telling him you know, how much he loves him and how much he admires him, and that his greatest... His greatest pride is, you know, not the big house he owns, not his family. His biggest pride was to tell people that he's from the same town as Jim Brown, right? Mm. This is what this man says to him. Loves him. Says, Jim, if you ever need anything, I want you to know, just call me. And then his daughter comes out and says, you know, Dad, I'd hate to interrupt you, but I still need to get that dresser moved from downstairs before we get the room painted. And I said, oh, baby girl, I'm sorry. I forgot all about it. So Jim, being you know, big, strong man, he said, you, yeah. you need help moving furniture? And the guy says, oh, Jim, that's so nice of you, but you know we don't let niggas in the house. Mm-hmm. So he, he was a benevolent racist. See, your racism doesn't have doesn't mean right. that you just you hate black people and you see that's this is America. This, it gets it's a slippery slope. So I can't say I don't know Joe Biden. I can't say he's not racist. I don't know him, but I do know that he gave the um, the the eulogy to the longest serving racist um, congressman, and that was Strong Thurman. <laughs> so my suspicions are there. At least, so at least he has some sympathies for racists. But um, so I just wanted to say I I, I can't I, I'm always hesitant to say um, who's 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 not racist, you know, because um, any white man <clears throat> that's um, uh, uh, from America who has been here the entire life who claims he's not a racist but doesn't know no racist. <laughs> <laughs> As, um, that's very suspicious to me. I'm like, what? You don't, what? You don't even have an uncle? <laughs> like, because right. like we're like, because in America we want to acknowledge, yeah, it's a racist country, except for you know, Camilla Harris uh, agrees with um, the highest-ranking black Republican, uh, Tim Scott. They both claim that America is not a racist country, but except for those two Negroes, everyone else admits that America's pretty racist country, but no one wants to admit who's racist. <laughs> well, you know, like, you know okay. I think I think it's a very complicated issue, and I'm going to tell you a brief story right now, and then I'm going to shut up for a while so my co-host can speak. But you know, I was lucky. The, lo- the lovely I, ballerina. Yeah, my lovely ballerina. Right. Thank God <laughs> she should be. A, you should be able to see her on Skype, not me. But uh, um, the you know, I was lucky to grow up in a family where. My mother, my mother worked in an all-black school. She loved the black children, but she believed every stereotype about black people. We used to say to her, Mom, you know, she was a wonderful person, but we used to say to her, Mom, what do you think happens when they turn 18, when people turn 18? I mean, you love them as children. You love black people as children. Then when you, they grow up, you're afraid of them. And I actually came home from middle school one day 
when I was a little boy, my sister, who was 10 years older, her and her friends, I grew up in North New Jersey, and her and her friends used to, uh, we were poor, and we lived in a little place, and her and her friends used to dance in the basement, and they taught me how to jitterbug as a little kid, so I come to nice white Montgomery County, and they have a jitterbug contest in my my uh, uh, middle school, and who do I ask to dance with me? Teresa Bennett, one of the few, one of like three black girls in the whole school. She's a great dancer, and guess what? We win the contest, and and I end up on the front page of the like little school newspaper. Me and Teresa with the trophy. This threw my mother into a self-induced coma. Now here's a woman that. Oh wow. That, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I said to my sister, what's wrong? And she showed me the picture and just shook her head like, you know, Mom, Michael, what are you going to do? And, and, and you, you know, and, and, and that's the thing. My mother was never mean to a black person. I, I would be so surprised if she ever did anything, you know, that, that was mean to a black person. Or, or she loved all the black children that were in her care, and they loved her. Uh, but... On the other hand, she believed every, you know, and 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 I don't know if I'm right or not, but I always wrote it off to to ignorance that she didn't understand. Uh, she she interacted with people, but she really never really got to know them. And that's you know, I always say the difference between Ward Three and Ward Eight for me is when I show up for a meeting at Ward Three. People say, what have you done for me lately? When I show up to a meeting in Ward 8, the first thing everybody says to me is, thanks for coming. So, well, uh, Senator Brown, it's, it's not, it wasn't just your sweet mother. You know, uh, since we're going to have uh, uh, you know, some uh, conf- confessions, my mother uh, thinks that if you, uh, you, know, if you don't ha- have Jesus in your life, you're going to hell. So she hates Muslims and Hindus. You know, if you ain't Jesus... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You know, yeah. you know, you know, you going to you're going to hell. You know, so and I, so that's so we're getting away from um, a lot of that old thinking, and hopefully we can, you know, you know, make a new world out of some new thinking. So go ahead, Morelia. We're both Catholics. We both believe that if you're not a Catholic, you don't you don't go to hell necessarily. But we I, get I the think, best I think seats, my mother right? would approve of Catholic. I think my mother approves of yeah. Catholic. We, we get the best seats, I think, we, we figure, <laughs> we, we, you know, because we know somebody. So go ahead. I'm sorry, Marilia. I'm oh, monopolizing things. That's all right. I was enjoying your, your repartee with Kimon, so it's it's great. Um, I, you know, Kimon, I, I hear you, and, and I am so with you. And, and But I wonder, you know, in terms of racism, in terms of Biden, you don't, you never know until you know what's in somebody's heart and what's in somebody's mind. And, you you know, like the late, great Mike Sonner used to say, you know, unless you've held the lantern, you just don't know. But, you know, you have to look at people's behavior on the outside. And, and, and on the whole, uh, for, for the majority of, of his behavior, I think, I don't think, you know, he is. Um, he is a very compassionate man. And I think that is a very important um, part of not being racist is being compassionate for each other and understanding what our plight or what each other's plight is. And I think also, um, you know, understanding, and I don't think people understand this, that we all 
really come from the same um, patrilineal DNA from Africa. We're all from the same atom, dating back about oh. 240,000 years back to Africa. And I think, you know, until people can can swallow that, I think that we will always, you know, Pete, not me, for um, but people will always think, you know, I'm I'm different. I'm not that, and that person is black, and I'm white. And there's a difference, but I think we need a lot of compassion in this society. And I think you gain compassion by experience and by yes, actually stepping in each other's shoes. Um, for me, growing up in Brazil, having been born in Brazil. I still have in my mind as a six-year-old, um, and my mother was very, very compassionate, and she taught us a lot, um, and she used to take us to the um, to see the blacks, the poor blacks and the favelas, and used to help them, and there was just huge compassion. Our maids were black, and she treated them like they were part of the family, and, and as a child, I learned that, and I learned that there really is no difference. And the thing that really sticks in my mind in terms of the plight of the other man, of the other colored man, if you will, um, is something I witnessed outside of our condominium when I was about six years old in Brazil. And that is a, a bunch of workers. And in Brazil, it's different. Um, it's changed a little bit, but in it, it was different. These people are extremely poor and they were digging ditches. And I think there was a water leak. And the ditch must have been, it was like um, probably 10 feet deep, maybe three feet wide. And there was dirt on the outside that they had dug out. And the rains came and somehow, and I don't remember the details because I was a child, but I remember witnessing this. The dirt came in and covered them. And it, it just fell like an avalanche back into the hole. And they were covered. And I knew they were covered. My mother was panicking and no one could dig them out fast enough. And they died. And the next thing I see is one of their children, this little black boy who came down from the favelas with his father's dinner. And that just killed me. And I remember as a six-year-old just crying and walking back into our condominium. My mother told me to go away. And, and walking up the stairs, we didn't have an elevator, it wasn't that tall of a building, walking up the stairs and feeling my tears hit up against the tiled wall and just thinking how awful that was. And I think that stuck with me. I know it stuck with me for all these years of my life. And it has created huge empathy in me and huge compassion because I knew those people were poor. They had nothing. And they died. And there was this little boy there holding his father's dinner. And from that day, and I think what's important, and I don't know how we do this, but I think we need to instill compassion in people. And I think the only way to do it is somehow, whether it's through virtual reality or what, and I think you do a great job with that, come on, but teach people what is it like to be in somebody else's shoes? That's the definition of empathy, truly. And it, unless you have that, you you just don't know. You will never know, and you're unable to understand. But come on, you have a brilliance and a sharp intellect and a unique awareness and perspicacity and, and a strength of spirit that has allowed you 
to create this incredible network, this web of unique messages and and very precise messages that really speak the truth. We have Kamone Freeman with us. and uh... Kamone, it's been wonderful. And I just hope that in spite of that inter internet glitch that you were able to hear what I said. And I just wanted to also add that I know you've done amazing things with the American Friends Society. With um, You've been to Kibera in, in, um, in Kenya, and I've been there too. And there are a lot of um, uh, similarities between Kibera and Anakasha. I think that the situation of Kibera in Kenya is much more dire than Anakasha, but there are the same threads that run through it, the same socioeconomic threads and the same yeah. background threads, which I think is something that really needs to be to to folk to be to receive a human focus in order to to fix this problem. Yeah, yeah. And I appreciate you sharing your story as well as the sinners sharing the stories because I think the stories uh, are important, and I think that is what resonates most with people. Uh, for those who do not know, you know, Brazil uh, is the country that has the largest uh, population of of of, um, of Africans outside of Africa, uh, yeah. uh, and then of course America is the second largest um, mm -hmm. outside of Africa. But um, and I think that, you know, Brazil currently has a, a Trump figure <laughs> uh, yeah. um, as well. And um, so I think that what we're seeing is the, the last stand of this, this good old boy network of, of inequity um, that is starting to change. We're moving towards a more equitable society, and that more equitable society doesn't have um, spaces to maintain millions of people, billions of people living in poverty, $2 a day, so a handful of billionaires can fly to the moon, you know, for, you know, for, for, for fun. Um, yeah. That is not the world that we need to be living, um, living in. And when the senator says that, you know, D.C., the, 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 uh, the last colony of America, um, in order for that to be true, that means we have to make a stand against colonialism. And but we still seeing colonialism being perpetrated. Um, you know, Elon Musk even calls his program um, 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 you know, the, the Colony on Mars. You know, uh, and so we yeah. we need to address that. And um, and we don't need to uh, uh, you know change the hearts and minds of, of races. You know, Leonard B. Johnson was a was 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 a big racist. Uh, he used the N word <laughs> like like candy. He's from Texas, <laughs> you know. Uh, uh, one of the most despicable white men on the face of the earth is from Texas, and that's that's from um, Robert Duvall. Um, on another um, movie quote, by the way. But um, he <laughs> passed more legislation that benefited African Americans than anybody else, you know. Mm. Uh, so that's why I say it's America is a, is a land of hypocrisy, you know. Um, that, and we need to um, um, expose that. And let me close by saying that, you know, when we say taxation by representation, this, this describes a populace that is required to pay taxes to a government authority without having any say in that government's policies. That has mm -hmm. been the status of black people and people of color uh, in this country throughout its founding, okay? Uh, and it wasn't until recently that black people were uh, granted um, the the right to vote in earnest, in actuality, not on paper, 
and that is still being uh, challenged today. And it goes back to the origin of the slogan with American colonialists uh, was fighting against the, the British rulers. Taxation without representation is tyranny. And that's mm-hmm. what we're dealing with uh, still in Washington, D.C. And I'd like to thank the, um, the district government for their small part, uh, because when they added the taxation without representation to the license plate, I uh, believe that was what, around 2000 or so, um, that was a source of pride and, and, and awareness. But in 2017, they added one more word to the phrase that I think made all the difference. And it says, in taxation without, without representation. And so that is why I like mm-hmm. to close with, I think that we're meeting the end and a new beginning. And having said that, um, most people are familiar with Martin Luther King's last speech, but they're not as familiar with his next to his last speech, which was delivered right here in Washington, D.C., March 31st, 1968, and was entitled Remaining Awake during a great revolution. He said that far too often people find themselves living in periods of great social change, but yet they fail to develop the new ideas, the new mental responses that the new situation demands. They end up sleeping through a revolution. I submit that's the very definition of stay woke, and that's why the Republican Party is trying to turn it into a pejorative. And so hopefully uh, your audience and our audience will continue to grow and continue to stay woke. Do something. Well, I'm back, y'all. Uh, uh, you know, I can hear you now, and and that's a great place to leave the show. And, you know, I haven't said anything for the last few minutes because you guys do, are doing a better job than I did. I don't think so, Mike, yeah. for my part anyway. No, that's not true. Uh, come on, Freeman. We're so happy to be part of your family. Uh, we look forward to a long relationship trying to get people to do something because that's what it's all about. So thanks for tuning into our show this week. Uh, I think next week we're going to take off Morelia because it's Christmas. Uh, you know, we'll see what we can, what we can dream up for each other. But uh, I want to end our show tonight by uh, dedicating this song to Kamon and all the people that we act. We usually end with the song and, and this is from, uh, this is from a favorite uh, play of mine about the elephant man, because I feel like I'm the elephant man of politics. You know, people don't really want to look at me, uh, but I am uh, unique. And uh, this is this is a great song. It's, it's entitled Feels Like Home. Thanks, folks. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. All the best in the new year. <laughs>